everyone. Welcome to The Next Level, a podcast from the Team Performance Institute. Here we provide actionable insights on modern leadership and team development, driving higher levels of organizational performance and life empowerment. I'm your host, John Sanchez. Join me and my team as we take you on the journey to the next level. Well, welcome everybody to the next level. I'm John Sanchez with Team Performance Institute, and um, we are doing a special series now called Leading Through Chaos. And I'm honored to have with me Coleman Ruiz, a great friend and patriot. And uh, just to you know, just give the Reader's Digest version of what is what we get to experience today, who we get to be with, and who we get to talk to. I'm going to speak briefly about Coleman, who I've known 20 plus years. Um, Coleman grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was a two-time state wrestling champion out of Louisiana. He went to um, the Naval Academy with the Naval Academy Prep School. Before that, went to the Naval Academy, rose through the ranks, did a superior job there at the Naval Academy, became the um, captain of the wrestling team. He was a top graduate from the class of 1998. And he was one of those very select few out of 150 guys uh, he was uh, one of 16 to be selected to go to SEAL Team Training, and he did extremely well there. Graduated from SEAL Team Training, and he was selected to go to SEAL Team 3, uh, where he served in the Middle East and Africa, did a lot of great things for our country. He did so well, he came back and, and he became an instructor for other SEALs going through our basic underwater demolition program. And after that, um, he really had the opportunity to be selected and try out for and go through a full nine-month selection process again to join one of our tier one assets, uh, the greatest counterterrorism team that I know of. And so only a dream for me to be a part of, part of that team. Uh, I give all that background uh, just so we have an understanding of who we have the opportunity to speak with. But Coleman, since his transition out of the United States Navy and out of the United States, uh, out of the SEAL teams, he's really taken on this leadership development realm, wrapped his head around it, wrapped all those, you know, all of his experiences, as well as this really very concentrated acumen around developing leaders, developing teams. He's worked with some of the best teams out there. Um, Coleman, it is an honor, uh, to say the least, to have you on on this uh, on this podcast with us. Um, I'd like to, in something you do really well, I'd like to like after that that amazing intro, I'd like to just bring the human factor in this. Can you just tell us a little bit about your family? Let's just start there. Yeah. Tell us tell us about your family. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, John. Um, family. My wife and I were classmates at <clears throat> the U.S. Naval Academy. She was a uh, recruited swimmer, um, and as our three boys, who are now 17, 14, and 10, describe to our family and other people that they meet, it's very likely that my mom was the first person accepted to uh, my parents' class at the Naval Academy, and my dad was the last, and here's why. (laughs) Bridget was a blue-trip recruited swimmer, and in her senior year of high school, she, I think she was already accepted in September or October, which, of course, is the beginning of, you know, your, your senior year, beginning of the school year. Um, I had no acceptances to anywhere until May, 
right around graduation from my senior year in high school. And I got accepted late to the Naval Academy because of wrestling and sent, as you mentioned, to prep school in Newport, Rhode Island. And of course you do a year at prep school and then you do a, then you go to the Naval Academy. So, um, so mom was a blue chip recruit and dad spent an extra post-grad year just to get into the class at all. <laughs> it was accepted late. So anyway, our boys, uh, Coleman is 17, Ben is 14. He's a freshman in high school and, uh, and Ollie, Oliver, we call him Ollie. He's in fifth grade. How are they doing? How, how are the boys, how is Team Ruiz navigating through uh, this, this crazy time of quarantine? This, you know, how, how's that coming for you and your family right now? Yeah, the, um, the quarantine's okay. I mean, we're obviously piled on top of each other as everyone else is, which is challenging. Um, coincidentally, we, we didn't move from Virginia Beach to Annapolis, Maryland until 2012 when our oldest was going into fifth grade or he was in fourth grade. And um, when I was in the SEAL teams deploying, you know, more or less like half the year every year, we homeschooled our boys when they were small in Virginia Beach. And so going back to – and then the kids went to school when we got to Annapolis. So anyway, going back to this homeschool model hasn't been terribly difficult. And really only Ollie, the fifth grader, needs our homeschool attention. You know, everybody else is pretty much like – luckily for our kids ages, self-sufficient, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. What are, um, what are you guys looking forward to? Like as a, as a family mm -hmm. when this, you know, what's the family, what's the team Ruiz feel on when this is, you know, when this is over? Yeah. What are you, what are you looking forward to getting back to? Yeah, that's another really good question. I mean, I'm looking forward to the kids getting back to their, social activities, frankly, meaning sports as well. And it turns out that all three of them would prefer to be in school than be home because we've, mm -hmm. we've asked them. Um, getting back to some normalcy is good. The thing that I'm really looking forward to either getting back to or paying more attention to is actually the hyper-dedicated time we've had together, building puzzles, consistently doing dinners together, which we try to anyway, but, you know, with the kids' activities and stuff, that's challenging during the week. Um, and I mean, you know, look forward to having a little space from each other too. I mean, I think it's, uh, simply a reality that living with somebody, you know, Bridget and I have been married 20 years living with anybody, even if you're in love with them for, you know, tight quarters is tough. So, you know, getting yeah. back to having some space is, will be nice. Yeah. Having space, living in tight quarters. Um, and I, I'm totally with you, you know, before this all started, it was like, we as a family with three kids, we struggled to have one night a week that we dedicated to family night, which we'd all sit around and have a meal together. And we had to actually tell some of the coaches and teams, hey, we're just going to take this one night, whether it be a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. Like, That's us, man. We got to get together and we just got to just one night a week. And now we get every night. So I love that. You know, you're looking forward to getting back to that. Going back to tight quarters. Um, you, you just wrote a really amazing blog on what it's like to be on deployment, you know, and in there, you know, I'm pulling a quote from that. You wrote, everyone else is just finding out what it's like to be deployed as, yeah, as yeah. a Navy SEAL or as a, you know, somebody in our armed forces. Can you articulate a little bit on like, you know, your perspective on what this is? 
Yeah, it started, John, with, um, as I mentioned in the beginning of the article, which shameless plug, of course, people can find on LinkedIn or my website, colemanruiz.com. But um, it started with two conversations with two business colleagues. You know, as you mentioned, John, I have some, you know, coaching, business, consulting, advisory stuff in this general space. And anyway, I was speaking to one of my buddies who uh, we were just chatting about the state of his business financially and operationally. Because as you know, I've done a couple of turnaround businesses since I got out. And it turns out that like every single one of my friends, colleagues, teammates out in the private sector now that I've been out for almost nine years, they, my phone started ringing off the hook just because, you know, I stay in touch with these people anyway. And they're like, Coleman, holy smokes. It feels like my business is quickly becoming a turnaround. Now it's not becoming a turnaround in traditional sense, but many, many businesses are now falling into the category of what do you do when a business needs quote unquote rescuing from distress. And we started off in this conversation about the tactics of a turnaround, which there are some that you need to do very, very quickly to, you know, save a business that might be in trouble anyway. And we're chatting, we're chatting. And I said, look, the guy's name is Ryan. I said, look, Ryan, what you're experiencing, like emotionally, forget the business for a second, is what it's like to be on deployment. And he's a student of kind of like us, John, right? Just, you know, military service members in general. And obviously he said, well, what do you mean? Like, tell me more about this. And I had this conversation three or four more times, like within that day or the next day. And so what I was telling Ryan was, so here's how it works. You're in some normal situation at home and then you deploy. And when you deploy, you land in a new place. We have now landed in a new place, you know, metaphorically speaking. And you are on some forward operating base that has a restricted area that you can move depending on where that FOB, that forward operating base is. You are <clears throat> obviously separated geographically from home, but you're separated physically and emotionally from the people that you love because it's hard to get in touch with folks. And you know, so you're separate in that sense. There's an external enemy. In, in our case, you know, COVID's a quote unquote enemy mm -hmm. that you only see the enemy on deployment when you go to it or it comes to you. Mm -hmm. That's right. And you may want either one of those things, right, in some form or fashion. And you can see or not see the enemy based on your training and how you mitigate. And so there's this mixed, smaller freedom of maneuver. And, and so there's that entity, right? And so the other entity of deployment is you, ha you now have a very restricted day for, your, for yourself as a human. You, you wake up, you go check into the operations center you breakfast, workout, whatever. And in this contained space, you have to maintain some sort of personal operating rhythm, like for a long time, for four, five, six, seven months, right? And so obviously the Navy's, the Navy, you know, ship the Teddy Roosevelt's in the news right now, but those sailors on that ship, a ship is the same way. It's a highly contained environment, a, a deployment for our teammates in the Army, the Air Force, the Marines, it's, it's all the same. Like you're on a restricted you know, base and you have to, it, it's just a weird feeling. And so I was, I was writing that article for, you know, quote unquote, normal people like us who aren't on the front lines. I'm actually writing a second one now because a couple of teammates asked me to write, what is it like on deployment for a frontline healthcare worker, yeah. which is totally different from what we're experiencing. Right. And so the target audience, quote unquote, the target reader 
was us at home, maintaining semi-normal jobs now from a distance, semi-isolated. And I wanted to just give people a sense that like, more than anything, this will be the last I'll say on it, more than anything is an encouragement to say, there's a way to do this. Like it takes a couple of weeks to get into your business operating rhythm mixed with your personal operating rhythm with this feeling of like this paradox of sometimes you're hyper busy and paradoxically incredibly bored all at the same time. Right. And the, the last thing that I think is important, and I've talked to this to a bunch of, you know, my business teams um, in the last couple of weeks as well, uh, is that this concept that Robert Greene, the author of The 48 Laws of Power, um, the book Mastery, that Robert Greene calls alive time versus dead time. And alive time is, is this idea that you're not passive in your, you know, isolation. Um, you're more active in your isolation. And so what do guys do? What do a lot of people do on deployment? They learn a language, finish a college degree, you know, read 60 books in six months, whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, the, I love the alive time, dead time. That's something that I've been talking about since I read it. I think it's absolutely, you know, phenomenal on how we, you know, how we create each of those spaces or even like just have the awareness of being able to segment those spaces, right, in our minds. Like how, do, you know, is this a lifetime or is it dead time? Because as we're sitting around, and I can't wait to read the second part that you're going to write about this. That's, that's super exciting because my wife, being a healthcare professional, is right upstairs right now working the front lines, or she feels like she's working actually in, a, in, in the rear of the fight, but she wants to be up there. and She wants to be you know, helping in whatever way that she can. But just to have that awareness of a lifetime, dead time, you talked about um, operating rhythm, you know, mm -hmm. operating rhythm and falling into that. And, you know, now that we're in, now we're, we're, we're into this, we, we, everybody's experiencing it. How do you assess operating rhythm for yourself? What are some of the things that you're doing to take care of yourself? And maybe can you, you know, shine the light towards, you know, what it was like on deployment as well with yep. that and some of the things that you guys did there? Yeah, it's, a, it's well, obviously getting this at the right time, John, because I was, I'm working on the new article, obviously, which is a little different. You know, right now it's at home. <clears throat> the new article is about being on deployment. So let me talk about here. <clears throat> Instead of just like discussing the concept, I'll do exactly what you suggested, which is like <clears throat> how I'm doing, you know, my own operating rhythm. If I don't have an alarm set and I don't have anywhere to be, I'm a 9.30 to bed, <clears throat> pardon me, 7.30 wake up guy. If no one touches me and I don't have anything waking me up, right? So this morning, because I try to do a lot of writing, what I'll try to do during the day and what Bridget and I are trying to do during the day right now is I'll get up at sometime between 6.30 and 7.30. I go straight to my foam roller to roll out my back, my arms, my legs, you know, just for physical fitness reasons. Um, a little bit of stretching. I'll warm up the coffee. I'll do a 10 minute meditation while my coffee is sitting in the coffee press. Blend my coffee and then I'll sit down on my computer and write 250 words of whatever I'm working on before I do anything else. And so the reason I say that first is because I find for myself in this idea of still mixing business and mixing personal endeavors while you're quote unquote on deployment or isolated in your home is if I get that time in the morning for coffee, foam roller, a little stretching, a short meditation, 
and write 250 words. I feel like I've captured a segment of my personal, like a lifetime before I start the day. Because right now, just like on deployment, if something on deployment demands your immediate attention in your next 24 hour cycle, or Ollie or the kids or whatever demands something of Bridget and I immediately, then you have to switch into quote unquote business operating rhythm, right? And so what I talk about in that article very briefly, and what I've discussed in the last couple of weeks with people is trying to keep the business operating rhythm and the personal operating rhythm separate and not mix them because they dilute each other, you know, unintentionally. And so that's hard to do right now though, because we have kids at home and some people have small kids and blah, 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 blah. Right. But the point is, is I try to move throughout the day in chunks of Coleman's time, business time, Coleman's time, business time, right? So I might do a couple things. I might help Ollie with some homework. I might get out of the office so Bridget can use the office. And then I'll go work out or do something, say mid-morning into noon, and then do some more work in the afternoon and then be available in the evening time for family stuff, right? And so my recommendation when I just think about my days on deployment in that article was to just be mindful of chunking your personal operating rhythm separate from your business operating rhythm and not trying to do both of them at the same time. Yeah, that's brilliant. And like you said, you know, some things can invade at certain points of time. I really feel for those with small kids going through this, you know, that's just really awful. I mean, not awful. It's, it's very challenging. I have a, a sister who has six children and all from, you know, the age of 12 and under, And, you know, that's just a whole different reality. You and I have kids that are, you know, 12 and older, which is, you know, Ollie's a little bit younger than that. But it's just a, you know, it's it's a great, it's easier place to be. Chunking it from Coleman time to business time, you know, that that, that totally makes sense and that can resonate with us. But one of the things that really resonated with me is you have this time in the morning where you spend like here's, you know, Coleman Ruiz and some may see you as like, you know, one of these ultimate warrior guys, but your morning routine is similar to mine. I'm getting up relatively early where it's a little bit more quiet, getting a cup of coffee, meditating, stretching. Um, Every morning, uh, Bridget, your wife turned me on to this app called the five minute journal, which is all about gratitude, right? And finding that place for yourself a lot of people are familiar with, uh, you know, uh, make your bed, um, you know, yep. um, that uh, Admiral McCraven put out. And that's really, a, you know, really simple concept and really good. But then here we are employing some of those things on a regular basis. This isn't like, you know, you have to have this extreme discipline in order to make it through these things. It's the simple things that you just employ time and time again. Right. And it's right. just, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, we, people talk about leadership, you know, all the time. And certainly you're leading in that space. You've led some major uh, teams, some major professional sports teams through things on leadership. Um, but one of your first tenets that you talk about in your works is followership. And we are at a time right now where we find ourselves in roles as followers, as being able to try to follow the rules around this quarantine or follow the rules around what we should be doing with our families, um, or maybe just following the rules for your companies or setting, setting structure around that. Can you talk to us a little bit about followership, you know, what that means through, through, through your lens and how important that, that is in times like this or just regular times? 
you know, all the time. I mean, <clears throat> this is a – I'm going to just watch my time so you can break in as well, John, and we can do this maybe in chunks because this is a – it's a fairly long story and topic in general. But I'm going to start us off by saying, like, Coleman Ruiz's view on teams and leadership in general is what many – of us don't realize when we're younger and coming up and we may realize along the way or we may discover along the way for ourselves that a leader if I'm not a big John Maxwell Patrick Lencioni like disciple necessarily but John Maxwell basically says like leadership is influence nothing more nothing less it's positive influence or negative influence or no influence or neutral influence or whatever right but using that concept um what I think a lot of leaders don't realize is, or followers don't realize, the a leader in any given situation is a is an empty space of just clothing standing in front of you. If the followers don't buy into them and their inspiration and their vision, right? So if you think about that, followers basically are getting to choose how powerful the leader of any given team, and I don't mean power in a negative way, how powerful that leader is going to be based on how much they buy in to their personality, their knowledge, their care, their dynamic, their inspiration, right? And so if you have totally making up the numbers, there's one leader and nine followers and there's a team of 10, those nine followers are like literally 90% of the leadership equation. Like what they do and don't do in that team is gonna give like an external observer an indicator of like how good or bad that leader is, right? And so we can't forget that that dynamic is inextricably linked in a way that we, when I say we, I mean the zeitgeist of media or leadership training typically just wants to look at the leadership position and dissect it versus the entire dynamic and how it interlocks together, right? And so let me describe one more concept that I discovered, you know, really, really late frankly, was when I was, so first of all, as you know, John, like the first leadership class where you sit for five days is this junior officer training course thing that we do after BUDS, right? And so I remember sitting there and a master chief was teaching this one segment in, in JOTC, junior officer training course, because we love acronyms in JOTC. And he said, everything that happens or fails to happen in your platoon, when you're a platoon commander, is 100% your responsibility. <clears throat> and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. He said, well, even the things that happen when you're not around, when they're not your fault. So, and I thought to myself, oh, damn, this, is, this could be pretty shitty. This could be a shitty deal. Like, some stuff happens in my platoon. I'm not there. I can't start or stop it. Some other person makes a good or a bad decision. And I'm 100% responsible for something that's not my fault. And he said, yep, that's exactly how it works. Okay, so later, I get out of the Navy in 2011, and I'm doing some work with some college football teams. And I'm just a student of, you know, this stuff anyways, you know, John, and I, and someone either recommended or I found somewhere, it had to be a recommendation. <clears throat> I read Ira Chalice's book, The Courageous Follower. Mm. Yeah. And I had never seen that book before. So I read The Courageous Follower and Ira Chalof's main thesis <clears throat> in The Courageous Follower is this. He goes out 
as, as an academic and a professor, he does a bunch of different research and he gets like 11,000 responses or something from athletic leaders, business leaders, academic leaders, parents, you name it. And the question he asks is, what does every leader, he's asking the question of the leader, what do they want of their followers, of their teammates on a daily basis? And what did those leaders want? They wanted a lot of things, but he boiled down to the top five things. Leaders wanted, <clears throat> wanted their teammates or their quote unquote followers to be, to have the courage to take responsibility, the courage to serve, the courage to challenge up, down, and across the chain of command, <clears throat> the courage to participate in transformation or be adaptable, and the courage to take moral action. So of all these responses, the most common things that people wanted of their team was take responsibility, <clears throat> serve, participate in transformation, challenge up, down, and across the chain of command, and take moral action. Okay, and then he asked another question. Of those five things, what did all those leaders want the most of if they can only choose one? And the one thing that every leader wanted the most of, of their followers, basically saying this makes a great teammate, is they wanted people to have the courage to take responsibility. And taking responsibility, not surprise, well, maybe surprisingly, was reported by all those respondents, John, more than the other four factors combined. Wow. So I'm reading Ira Chow's book. This is like 2012. It was like eight years ago. Yeah. And I'm thinking about my time in the Navy and I'm thinking about this master chief who told me a hundred percent of what happens as a, in, is your responsibility in your platoon, what happens and fails to happen. I'm thinking, well, if the number one thing that leaders across the country, or at least in this research, the number one thing they wanted of a great follower was the courage to take responsibility. And my first leadership course in the SEAL teams, I was told, and I, and I think he's correct, he is correct, is that 100% of what happens or fails to happen in a leader's position is 100% their responsibility. How do we learn to be a good leader? We teach people how to be good followers first, and then they organically grow into this role, which of course requires some other skills along the way. Let me add one more note on this because I was doing these, this work with all these college athletic teams, I realized how much damage we're doing to <clears throat> college, high school, younger kids, our teammates in business who are just coming out of college maybe, is that every company, every college, MBA, every program anywhere wants to teach a leadership class. I say cancel all your leadership classes before you teach a followership and a teammate course you know, a 101 level, this is how to be a great teammate because my sense is that we're rushing people into leadership positions too fast. Skoma has a brilliant, um, thank you on that, on followership. The traits that you mentioned remind me of our great friend, Doug Zembeck, the Lion of Fallujah, who wrote, you know, in all those concepts and it finishes so strong with take responsibility for your actions. And I absolutely, absolutely love that. These are great words to live by. You know, you're quoted as saying the road to leadership is through followership, through yeah. being a great teammate. And when you work with teams, you know, often ask yourself as a leader, how am I doing? Like, really? How am I doing? Like, how am I doing? How am I showing up as a teammate? Right? How am I doing for the leadership that is above me? Right. And how am I, how am I treating? How am I working? I like to say, you know, you know, 
wars are won, you know, you know, side by side horizontally, right? Exactly. You know, being a good teammate, am I being a good friend? Am I doing the right things? Am I, um, you know, am I taking really responsibility for for myself and holding others accountable? People ask me, do you miss the teams? I I, I don't. I don't miss the teams in the way that you think I do. I really miss the teams in the way of working alongside people who are, um, you know, just, I have that feeling of I'd rather, I'd rather die than fail the person next to me. That, that sense is just so great. And I know you've created it in your world uh, now uh, and I've created it in mine, you know, team performance Institute. We're just having so much fun in this realm of building leaders. Um, let's talk about character. Um, you write about character as a, as a pattern of behaviors which I think is a really phenomenal way to look at it. And, you know, people think about character, they think about the big, you know, trust, honor, integrity, courage, all these things. And then the, the, the esoteric weird ways and how we may measure those things. Yeah. But, but you have a really cool perspective on that. Can you share that with us? Yeah. Again, John, like, <clears throat> like for any of these things, they're lifelong observations, you know, and I go back to, go back to these inflection points in your life and what are they for, you know, people like us at least, and lots of people, you know, it's going to the Naval Academy or people go to their college and it starts a new phase of life, but you end up, I think it's a healthy thing. You know, you look around when you go to a place like the Naval Academy and I can remember looking for what right looks like, so to speak. And what's the first thing that you hear is that the Navy's core values are honor, courage, and commitment. <clears throat> and this isn't a positive or negative thing, but I look around at, you know, classmates at the Naval Academy and the shenanigans in the news right now with, you know, the assistant secretary of the Navy, he's now resigned and all this other stuff, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. But you see a range of courage and in the Navy, you see a range of honor and in the Navy, you see a range of commitment, but, but these terms are thrown like it's honor, courage and commitment, right? Or you go to some college and they have, you know, integritas and this and that and, it's the words that they love to use or not use. It's their choice, you know, and we have it in businesses too. You know, there's some mission statement on the wall and we say that these five core values are our five core values. And you look around at different teammates and employees and even look at yourself and you're like, well, some days I'm courageous and some days maybe not so much and blah, blah, blah. Right. And so there's a range of all these things that we tend to just attach because it's easy and it's a low lift for us to just put three to five words and say, that's who we are, that's what we do, that's what we're about, that's the character of this team or this business or this unit or whatever. But the truth is, for me, is that if you observe yourself and the way your team runs in 24-hour increments, because it's a, it's a manageable chunk, the character of the team and the character of the person has nothing to do with honor, courage, and commitment. It, it has everything to do with um, decisions that happen in 10 and 20 minute segments. It's like how I respond to something in the conference room. It's how I decide to hire or furlough somebody. It's what words do I say when I'm letting them go or when I'm promoting them. It's that I respond appropriately or inappropriately when you know, my kids did a thing or didn't do a thing. And, and if you just take a 24 hour period and look at really the decisions and the accrual of behaviors day by day, that's what 
builds our character, you know, and using David Brooks's words, you know, his book title, the road to character, it's essentially the thesis that he, that he lays out is that you can't take, you can't look at Ulysses S. Grant and say he was whatever, right? You can give him five buzzwords. If you looked at his lifetime incrementally and you picked out certain time periods, at one point you could say the guy was basically should be admitted for stuff, you know? Right. And other times, you know, he's essentially the leader of the free world. And that's, we got to be careful with like, um, the low lift three to five word character descriptions, I think. Yeah. I love how you break it down into 24 hour increments, right? That's something that we can bite size, right? That's something that we can figure out. That's something we can do. When you think yeah, about yeah. character, you think about your character. Most people, I believe, think they have good character, right? Until, yeah. until told oh, otherwise yeah. multiple <laughs> times, maybe. You know, but we all kind of believe, but then, you know, how do you really reflect on that? How do you look back at these are the things that I have done over the past 24 hours? You take Brooks, you take like Dale Carnegie, who says life only comes in day tight compartments. You only sure. get from, you only get from, you know, the strike of midnight to the next to really give what you got. Yep. And there's going to be days when you do well, and there's going to be days when you suck. Let's, let's, let's be honest. And we've had those and that's, you know, that's difficult. One thing that we work on a lot is this humility factor to leadership. And uh, we, you know, teach a lot of self-compassion, right? To leadership is a, is a long process and it's a journey, just getting up day in and day out and having a little bit of self-compassion is going to help you get up the next day. It is okay to make mistakes and boy, have I made a million, right? Tons of them. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's, let's go there. Let's talk about humility for a little bit because, you know, I, you know, I liken leadership, um, followership to, to golf, although I don't play golf. Um, you're never going to score an 18, right? Yeah. Or I liken it to uh, martial arts, which I've done where you, you get to, you go up to a certain level, you get to a plateau, right? Or you, you feel like you're doing really well. You're ready to go. And the next day you go in and you just get your butt handed to you. You yeah, know, man. it's just like, man, you know, just, it just takes you, it just takes you back. Um, you talk about humility from the Latin terms, mm-hmm. right? Of being close to the ground. Yep. Um, can you give us your, your perspective and, and possibly some of the things that you may have failed at and how you get back up and, you know, how humility has helped you along on your journey. Yeah. I mean, the, so from the Latin humilis, right? Low or lowly or in the ground, you know, and if people are gardeners at all, humus is actually dirt, you know, it's in the ground and humility as in like Coleman doesn't think he's better than John is one thing, but humility as in, which again links to leadership, followership concepts and everything else is at the end of the game, so to speak, the game of life, the Kings and the pawns all go back in the same box. So whether a business gave us some leadership title, we got an opportunity to be a divisional president, a CEO, or we're, we're just newly hired junior controller in the finance department. The CEO, when his life is over, uh, 
gets buried in the same graveyard as the newly hired controller, so to speak. And so um, in my, in like these 10, you know, things of how to deal with uncertainty that I wrote because of the situation that we're all in, the, the reason I wrote about humility the way I did was actually for an operational reason, was to remind some of our, because I still do some work with some medical people on the front lines <clears throat> through one of my projects. And the point was to remind them and some other like business colleagues of mine that when, the, when an environment like this, like a deployment or a crisis is moving super fast, all of your accurate information is as close to the ground as possible. In a normal business tempo, because our systems are in place and we can see a little further towards the horizon, our, our, our business processes and our planning processes, processes are a little more stable. When the environment gets as unstable as it gets, my reminder, John, in this idea of like being close to the ground was as a leader or a teammate right now, you have to be so genuinely humble and close to the ground because the ground is moving beneath our feet so fast. Mm -hmm. So that was the operational reason I was talking about it. If you just take that into, you know, the metaphysical, emotional, esoteric realm of humility, it's that keep your feet on the ground, especially in a time like this, because nothing you knew, maybe not nothing, most of the things we knew four to five weeks ago are totally different today. And so if you're, if me, you, anybody is trying to hang on to what used to be, how it used to look, no, no. Like that's actually the exact opposite of true humility. We're up above the ground thinking something else is going to happen and on the ground, shit's going haywire. You know? Yeah. Yep. So as Pete Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks likes to say, be where your feet are. Yeah. Like whatever your feet are feeling is actually happening. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. This is John Sanchez with Team Performance Institute. I'm here with my SEAL team brother, Coleman Ruiz. This is the end of part one of our podcast together. Stay tuned for part two when we talk about how to survive and thrive in uncertainty. We're going to talk about the Stockdale Paradox and its applicability to our, to our current uh, era and also how we're defining winning in this new reality. We look forward to being with you and we'll see you soon. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on The Next Level. We hope that you found a couple of tips or insights today that you can take into your daily life. To learn more about our leadership training programs, our executive coaching programs, and the Team Performance Institute, please visit us at teamperformanceinstitute.com or email us at info at teamperformanceinstitute.com. Hope you have an awesome day.